I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey guys, welcome to And The Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you wanna listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, Follow us on our socials, find out about special live events, or buy that merch, a.k.a. that hat I always wear. Go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. For a little bit of context, we just wanted you to know that a lot of these were recorded before quarantine. And as we know, a lot has changed in 2020. So again, please stay safe out there and enjoy the new episodes of And The Writer Is. This week's episode is sponsored by BMI. At BMI, music moves their world just like it moves mine. BMI is my performing rights organization. They're the bridge between people who create music, like me, and the businesses that bring it to the public. They make sure I get paid when my music is streamed on apps or shows, played on radio, at live shows, or in bars, gyms, basically anywhere where music is played. And they do this for over 900,000 songwriters, composers, and music publishers with more than 14 million songs across genres. But it's more than that. They help us navigate the music industry. They create opportunities for aspiring writers and composers through stages at festivals, song camps, and workshops. And they connect us with the right people. They're also on Capitol Hill fighting for copyright protection and fair royalties. And they work hard to ensure the future of music. They have my back and they'll have yours. Learn more at BMI.com. Yeah, I'm ready. All right. Looking right in your eyes. Welcome to <laughs> And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's guest is not just a great songwriter, but a living cult classic. Commonly loved for his country wit, this writer has not only participated as a co-writer on ACM, CMA, and Grammy-winning albums, but fronts a new wave punk band called Steve. That sure explains song titles like Velvet Elvis for Casey Musgraves, Highway Vagabonds and Pink Sunglasses for Miranda Lambert, and Burning Man for Dirk Bentley. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, <laughs> this guy's been focusing on his documentary, Red Dog, about his childhood and being raised in a strip club. So yeah, for real, a cult classic. All the way from Oklahoma, 
this husband of a neurologist was a professor before all this Nashville craziness started. And the writer is Luke Dick. Hey, 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 that is uh, exuberant. I love it. Is any of that accurate? Yeah, it's all accurate. Okay, good. Okay, cool. All right. You know, it's like... You're in it. Yeah, it's it's sort of hard to... This is our first time really hanging out. Yeah, yeah, we're just straight to it. Okay. So I was just, you know, I was just kind of (laughs) guessing. I guessed all of that. (laughs) I actually didn't look up anything. It's just... I improved that entire thing. 12. Yeah, right. Not bad. (laughs) Um... Okay, so uh, Oklahoma, and I think your childhood is a good place to start because you're actually, uh, you know, you we were in New York at the same time, That's we're in right. L.A. at the same time, and part of it is because you're promoting your, the documentary that you just finished, which is really about your childhood. So uh, without giving away too much of the documentary, tell me about your childhood. Um, well, I think... Anybody's childhood feels ordinary um, when you're in it, right? You're just doing the thing. Um, but I would say, in terms of the movie, um, my my general life, my young life was pretty country living type kind of thing. It's a really small community, three hundred fifty people in a ten mile radius kind of thing. Um, where in Oklahoma? That that's a, that was a town called Minko, which actually we lived on the outskirts of a two thousand person town. So the little farming community is called Coger. It was unincorporated now, but it it was incorporated in the teens, in the nineteen teens, which is a beautiful piece of history. I'm sure all your li- listeners will oh, yeah. love looking looking about. They filmed a part of Rain Man out there. Remember the movie Rain yeah, Man? Yeah, of course. Anyway, it was a talk of the town. Um, but before that, and where the movie takes place is this little slice of um, history in my mom's life around this bar called the Red Dog, which is the topless joint in Oklahoma City. It's been there, stills there. It's been there for 60, 70 years. And it's pretty much in this notorious rite of passage in Oklahoma. And my mom worked there from the time she was 16 all the way through my birth at at 20 when she was 21 and then went back there after she and my dad split up and so the movie really is tracking down people that were family friends and then people that remained family friends from that era of a of a weird childhood and kind of an unconventional parenthood scenario does the music that you hear in a strip club at that time influence who you became as a musician? Um, I I think my parents, it's asking, same probably to you, asking if your parents' music influenced you at all. Sure. I think it always influences you. And the soundtrack, which is shoring up now, I mean, that was kind of an intention behind it, was that I wanted to, to feel like the the songs that were being played then. Um, what kind of music is being played in a strip club in Oklahoma? I imagine some of it is it, that it's not all uh, either rock and roll and not all hip-hop or dance music. But there's no that hip-hop there's, then. I right, mean, that was so 1979. Then, yeah, so, so then, then is the music country music? That my, my mom, there's this little bit in the movie where my mom talks, they talk about the music that they used to dance to. 
And my mom hated country music. She was like, it was ridiculous to dance to that. And she said, uh, but the like the the cowboy oil men would come in, like these oil workers would come in, and she said they would put money in the jukebox and play whatever they wanted to, and you'd have to dance. The dancers would have to dance wow. to that. And she said, you know, I had to dance up there to Hank Jr. and she said it was ridiculous, you know. But she said you can make a lot of money. So, you know. Um, how did your parents meet? My dad was a patron in the bar. Wow. Um, and the bar is r- roughly four or five miles from where he grew up in a little uh, suburban Oklahoma City town called Yukon, which is actually where I graduated from. My uh, I won't bore you with every um, every divorce ever happened in my life, but I ended up going because my grandparents lived there, and then my biological dad had moved back there, and there were roots there, and so I ended up graduating to the, the home of Garth Brooks. <laughs> I went to high school on Garth Brooks Boulevard. Oh, amazing. <laughs> I mean, and plus, when you went to high school, Garth Brooks was the biggest in the world, so he was, to, have, to have Garth Brooks yeah. in your be the hometown hero, uh, man, that's I, kind of... You know, I grew up near the bull, where the bulls practice. Yeah, and I always thought that that was you know in the in the '90s to have the bulls practice in your hometown and have Phil Jackson's kids went to our high school. It was like a similar thing to having Garth Brooks be totally. Your high but I was a rock dude in high school, and I mean, I I low key liked um, Garth Brooks because you couldn't deny like how good that shit was. Was it? Was there like a, a pushback? from people liking Garth Brooks because... No, there wasn't a pushback. It's like, I love Nirvana, though. I mean, you can't... I mean, it's like a litmus test. You can't be... You can't be out there wearing Mo Betta shirts and and (laughs) being a Nirvana fan and wanting to be in a rock band. Yeah. But that kind of describes who you still are. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Except for I can't... You know, you can't hide your roots anymore once you're out there writing it up. Right. So, um, did either of your parents actually play music um the the short answer is no my mom liked music and my dad i didn't know this until later but he had a couple of high school bands that he sang in but i never heard any of the music and he it wasn't an active kind of pursuing of music in the household not until later my uncles came around the house where they had guitars and stuff like that how old were you then when they started bringing guitars around, probably seven or eight years old, but they weren't around all the time. I and mean, it really wasn't until I was in fifth or sixth grade and I got recruited to play, you know, in the little country school playing in, in the band. You could, at fifth grade, you could either... What do you mean the... Like oh, the, band, country school, the band, not the country, country school, yeah. no, not a country band. The country school had like in fifth grade, you what, what are the electives. You're, you could either take a class called newspaper which consisted of reading the Daily Oklahoman every day, which Mm. is, as you can imagine, riveting for a fifth grader. Or you could be in band, in Miss Cyrus' band. It was her name. And and I didn't think my parents had enough money to afford a horn or whatever, and I felt guilty. I didn't want to ask them for money for a horn. And for some reason, it sound, I felt like horns were like $3,000 or something. You know, aren't they hundreds of dollars? Aren't horns pretty expensive? It just sounded like a million dollars to me. We rented ours. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that there was a rental program. I just knew that there <laughs> yeah. But But then I heard that, and those were all lame instruments anyway. Um, you know, I was into rock bands by then. And so it was like, oh, but drumsticks are only five bucks. 
So I joined the band. That was my first, my foray into formal education of... Was as a drummer. Was as a drummer. Mm -hmm. A lot of good songwriters are drummers first. Really? Yeah. Name one. I think actually most a lot of producers, and certainly in our world, a uh, lot of you know producers. I are, loved it. Our drummers first. We would go into like the bus that I took to school. I was the the first one on because they would come out to the farthest point and pick you up, and then the last one off when they took you back home. So it was like an hour and a half. I've spent three hours on a bus every day going to and from the house. Uh, I counted it up. It was like thousands and thousands of hours at some point. I count up how many hours on the bus I spent. What spell. did you do on the bus? Um, do you have any recollection of oh, that? Oh, God, yes. I mean, it was so That's much. a long drive. Um, one time, Amber Fur pulled my hair out because I was making fun of her boyfriend. She was uh, an older. We yeah. were getting sort of low-key fights. Me and my... Does Amber know? Have you talked to Amber since I haven't this? talked to her since the sixth grade. Um, amazing if she listens to yeah. this and is like, oh my God. Uh -huh. Yeah, uh, she probably doesn't remember, <laughs> but it's the first time somebody ever pulled my hair so hard, like she had a handful of it. Has anybody oh ever done that to you? No, and I have. I mean, I had a sibling. Maybe, I feel like maybe it happened. It's a sibling. unique feeling, you know? Yeah. I, I don't know if I recommend everybody. Yeah. Well, it's a lot harder to grow back now. So <laughs> you hope you hope it happened when you were younger. We yeah we we would. I remember getting and there were little fights on the bus. And me and my best friend, we had our nemeses. Uh, Bill Smith and Tracy Malloy were our nemeses, and for most of the year, Tracy Malloy is everybody's nemesis. Yeah, yeah. Just so you know, you bring don't your, feel unique. <laughs> <laughs> if he brought, you know, they brought their Hot Wheels to school or our Hot Wheels to school. We were always, everybody's like stealing each other's Hot Wheels and be like, no, I didn't take it. I don't know where it is, you know. And then... So funny. It, and then one day a year, we would switch partners. Like, it was like when the, when, you know, Hulk Hogan turns heel, you know what I mean? It was kind of a, one day a year, we would switch where it's like we would turn against each other. Were you into professional wrestling? Come on, dude. I mean, I feel like... I only got three channels and, you know, it's yeah. like there's not that much entertainment going on. Do you and on. Luke Laird only talk about professional wrestling? We've never gotten into that. Um, oh, my God. I feel like you guys should go and see some professional wrestling together. For Christmas, and my brother-in-law, um, he got a little studio knickknack for me. It is a, a gigantic... Randy Macho Man Savage head yeah. for his Slim Jim. It's a Slim Jim holder, like the original deal, and it, and it was full of Slim Jims. That's so really sweet. It was really sweet. <laughs> so what kind of music was the band? Was it a jazz band? I mean, when you're playing drums... I play jazz, I play in marching band. How quick of a learner were you? Because to, to hear drumsticks, to being able to actually perform and play, you know, you're you're pretty young at that point, right? How old were you? 10. So you're 10. How quickly from 10 to when you could actually perform I'll where it sounded like music? I started playing like pep band in 6th or 7th grade to where I could carry a beat. Uh -huh. um, but um, what, I, what I was, the tangent about the bus was to say that the bus would get there 20 or 30 minutes before school started. I would go to the band room and practice. That was yeah. my practice time. And uh, I loved it. You know, I bought us, I finally was able to afford a kit when I was in eighth grade and we had this chicken coop kind of screened in porch up where we would raise little chickens and once we were out of that world I set my drums up there and there was a little bit of electricity and I would put 
this boom box and I'd hook other speakers up to it and I would play to like, I remember playing, I played a Credence, I would play to Depeche Mode, I would play to um, Guns N' Roses. It was like this sort of eclectic practice space, you know, it was kind of bizarre in retrospect. But. And then secretly Garth Brooks when no one was I never playing. played Garth Brooks. <laughs> Don't you repeat that. Yeah. All my all my 8th grade cred will be gone. <laughs> um when did you start playing in a band outside of school? Um I tried to get bands together when I was that age, but the town was so small, you couldn't find anyone to I mean there was like one guy who played guitar. And I remember wanting to play Pearl Jam's 10 so bad. Hmm. And I bought the book and I had a friend and Michael Gurley. And if Michael, I'm, I'm about to slanderize Michael Gurley a little bit, just a little bit, but I yeah. bought the book so he would learn the songs on guitar. And he wouldn't learn the songs. I'd go, I'm like, why did you, did you learn the song no man i haven't learned it yet he had his parents bought him a guitar had he had a bass he had a drum kit he had everything amps everything and he wouldn't learn it and i said give me the book back he gave me the book back and i just remembered this guitar in my grandma's attic it was a i got it down i it came to be it was just an old harmony acoustic guitar and i went took it i said grandma you take me to the music store and so they can show me how to tune this thing up and so they put strings on it and tuned it up. And then I started learning tablature, and then that was it. I was done with the – not officially done with the drums, but I was on to trying to write songs and trying to play the guitar. Did your family – do you have siblings? I do have siblings. Um, did all – were you guys all raised in the same house? Or, no, I know no. I was, I'm a one-off, uh -huh. um, but I have a half-sister that I was raised with. And then I have a bunch of siblings on my dad's side. So it was kind of, you know, floating in between yeah. a, a, a lot of different siblings. Did other people play music? Did, in, my I mean, in my house? Sure. No. Um, I was the only one who was on it. My uncles later in life, I would play so with them a right? little bit. I would play with them a little bit. and I. What kind of music would they play? Um, I remember this one uncle, he would play... Um, he liked playing Neil Young songs, mm. um, The Needle and the Damage Done. He loved playing that song and singing I mean, it's it. also Eddie Vedder's, you know, idol. So yeah, there's yeah. actually some there's similarity with them. Connection. Yeah. And then I, I, as a step-grandfather, my father remarried, and I remember he had this great music room with all these instruments, and a little later did I find out, once you start playing, it's like, oh, these guitars are legit. He had a lot of legit instruments, and... So he took an interest in me when I started getting serious about it, and he would feed me an instrument for Christmas or something. He'd get he'd give me a decent guitar, and now my studio is stocked with half of them or stuff that he Amazing. gave me. And then my uncles, those other uncles, they've uh, both since passed, and um, both gave me guitars. And one of them was on a hit, and I like I use these on hits and stuff like that. So cool. Uh huh. So how soon after learning tablature did you write? Because there's, I feel like there are some people who actually practice the music that they're learning. There's some people who don't know how to practice well. But maybe as a drummer, you did. I don't know. I don't I, mean to project. You mean you mean like practice? Somebody gives song? you a Pearl Jam yeah. book of chords. You start learning chords. Yeah. How soon after that do you actually write a song? Um, I would say within a year, I started writing songs. Really? They're they're absolutely horrible. What's like, the first one called? Free me today. Did you play it around for Hell people? Hell no. 
what, how does but it, I thought it was great. How does I it thought go? It was great. I, I threw it all away, but I, I mean, I guess this is embarrassing because you, I throw the way I work. I'm not a pack rat. I like just throw away the past. I'll throw away songs I wrote last year because I hate them so bad. But this is like the in the heart of 14 year old Luke, uh-huh. angsty. I don't want to live here. I hate everyone. Like kind of getting into Tool, but uh-huh. really into like Eddie Vedder's daddy issues and stuff like that. Uh, how did, how does goes, the melody go? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you put me on the spot. <laughs> it's like, free me today. Free me today. Anyway, I, don't I know. think it's I think it's really important that you 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 like close one eye uh-huh. when you sing it. Yeah, it, it yeah, gets yeah. more of the emotion out. I think I was a big influence. I think I was an influence on Nickelback. I don't know. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, is it? clearly. Uh huh. So, um, when do you? How old are you at this point? I guess 14. you're probably yeah. So, you're in high school. I mean, when when do you start playing out in public? <sighs> when I, I I moved to the when I moved to Yukon, uh, the the town was a six A town, which is how they differentiate towns in Oklahoma in terms of. Um, size and so there were I went from having a class of 23 to having a class of 450 Um, and the town was full of people who played and so I remember like carrying my guitar all over the place or trying I I was trying to play drums in a band then um, because I was just sort of honing I was better at the drums than I was at the guitar and so um, trying to get into bands and it wasn't until I was like a sophomore or junior in high school I wanted to form a band with this drummer who was in the jazz band there and he was awesome and uh, I was like we're gonna do something I just had to find a bass player I had to find this and put it together I got these song I got this great hit called free me today that I need you to play dun, 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 dun. Yeah. and he, he was like all right and there was this other band and they played, you know, the volleyball festival or whatever, you know, the the shit that you play when you're a kid, like the high school event, whatever. And I, I was like, these guys suck. We're going to blow them out of the water, man. Our stuff is going to be the stuff, I'm telling you. And then, like, two weeks later, Tyson, my buddy, the drummer, he's like, I'm going to join their band. I'm like, dude, what are you talking about? I'm going to join their band. Like, we we were going to have a band. He's like, sorry, dude. And then they played some assembly or something, and they crushed it. They played they played uh, Bullet with Butterfly Wings from the Smashing Pumpkins. Wow. And, you know, it was on fire, and I'm just like, all they needed was a drummer, see? They needed a great drummer. And then... Dave, the singer, he was in my biology class. And uh, he's like, man, I heard you can play. I'm like, yeah, dude. And so he's like, we should jam sometimes. So we jammed. And he's like, he was bitching about the bass player in class. Man, so-and-so won't come to practice. I'm like, fuck that guy. I said, I'll play bass. He's like, you play bass? I'm like, no, I'm going to play bass. So then I joined, I joined the rival band, and then we went on to play all over Oklahoma and Texas for a few years. While you were in high school and uh-huh. after that? Yeah. Um, did you guys try to get a record deal? Was that ever even uh, we on got, the table? We got a regional record deal. With who? 
this label called One Ton. They were out of Dallas and they had bands that were like big local bands in a big market. Who I could, mean, that's an era also, it's hard to explain what local bands and local and regional music was because it wasn't before. There's no way to get your music to the world then. You are yeah. just basically, the only way that you can hear somebody's music is if you see them live because there's not a digital way to represent it. MP3s had just been invented and they were yeah. glitchy as hell. And yeah. so... Um, so tell me about this, like what it's like to be, I mean... Were you guys, how big were the rooms that you were playing? Well, we never got, we got to where we could draw a couple hundred, two, three hundred. Then the guys went off to college and they were in fraternities. So we play these big fraternity parties and stuff yeah. like that. I wouldn't say we were ever a band who could, who could really move some tickets. But the bands on this labels, they could. It was like 500, 600 caps, which to, when you're yeah. a kid... Seems humongous. We got to open some big shows as a band for 2000. We played a big festival that was 10,000 one time. This Do you remember of any of the people you played with? The other bands? Other bands? Yeah. We opened for the Toadies. Um, I don't oh, know if yeah. you remember the Toadies. Yeah. Sure. A wicked, wicked, awesome yeah. Texas band who are still cultishly followed for good reason. Yeah. Um, I mean, they had a major hit, too. They had a major hit. Um and that was the hope that we were going to another market. It was like moving to LA was not on. Everybody was going to college, you know. It was like they were. We were all like responsible kind of kids. You Where know? did you? You guys didn't go to the same schools, or two guys went uh, an hour away, and then two of us stayed in the city, in Oklahoma City and went to college. Where did you go? I went to Oklahoma City University, and they went where? To Oklahoma State University. Did you um, study music in school? Um, I went to this private liberal arts school because somebody came and said that they had a music business program. Oh, wow. That's super ahead of its time. Yeah. And this was, I graduated in 97. Mm -hmm. So I was like, whoa. 97 from high school? Or? Yeah. from yeah. And I was like, wow, what could this be? And it was, it was a manager. He was a country manager who had managed the Oak Ridge Boys and Roy Clark. And I mean, he'd made a name for himself. It was, he was really, he was, um, had made a mark. Um, and he wanted to cultivate this school. And I said, that sounds really fun. Um, and it was expensive because it was a private school. But I thought, well, I'll go. First semester in, I was just like, he had, he had all, it was like, he had already picked his favorites. It felt like like he had these fraternity dudes who were help helping him with his projects already. And I'm like, oh man, there's no room for me. It's already happening here. And then also, like I'd go to a class and it'd be like, okay, when you're touring in Russia with Roy Clark, <laughs> the thing about you know, I feel like that's why I felt like the lecture would start out is the thing about touring in Russia with Roy Clark, and I'm like stop, I can't do this. And by then, I'd really gotten into my liberal arts classes and history and philosophy and stuff like that. And so I'm like, I think it's time to pivot. I always got music. This is not going to be a path for me. Um, sure. It didn't feel like it. And there was a little bit of formal training that was supposed to be a part of music business, but that was the end of my band. And being in bands, that's not a formal training, but being in the Minko marching band was the last of my formal training until a couple of years ago when I started taking piano lessons. Did you, um, during that time when you're, 
you know, your interest is starting to go somewhere else than music, kind of mm-hmm. for the first time, it sounds like. Yeah, for sure. And did you finish a degree in something else? Did you? Yeah, I, I mean, I got a degree in history and philosophy mm-hmm. and thought, well, that I'm, I would love to be in a band or be musical for a living, but if I'm not that, my... My backup, my backup plan is to be a philosopher. But be a philosophy professor, which Uh. sounds so so ridiculous, you know, in terms of that being your solid plan. Sure. Um, So, what brings you? How do you get out of Oklahoma? Did you want to? What What then gets you to go from? How do you get from there? What happens in your life between there and when I can Wikipedia you, or what the equivalent of? I played with this um I played with this guy I, the the high school band quit everybody s- just started getting jobs and stuff like that and there were a couple of big gigs that we could have had that nobody wanted to play I had a kid I said if we're not going to go pl- open for these huge acts we don't really want it that bad we don't need to do this You I had a kid? To, yeah, I had a kid when I was 20, 21. Wow. And so that was to me. I was just like, I'll keep trying, um, but it also seems so far away. Like, how do you, when you're not around infrastructure and you don't understand the infrastructure of the business? It was just like, I don't get this. I love music, but um, I can't see it right now. And also, I'm not that into our material anymore. And dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> cut <laughs> cut to me starting to write kind of alt country songs and chill out a little bit by myself um, um was it a specific artist that influenced that was it sort of i was like into wilco, wilco. i no. was into t- i was into tom petty i was into jackson brown i was into these classic 70s um uh, you you wanted to be the artist though. I wanted to be the. I started singing in my car. I didn't sing in the other band. I just played the bass, and so I started developing my own voice of what that would sound like and what I wanted might want to say or, or whatever. And I mean, it's hard, you know. I mean, it's like it's a lot of nerves involved. Sure. In it. And but we got to be pretty good and started selling tickets and in Oklahoma City and became a, a like a local band that people would watch and we would get opening gigs for like big red dirt Texas bands or whatever. We didn't quite fit with them but it worked well enough and we could play in front of 700 people or whatever. Yeah. And this ba- bass player who was filling in um said, uh hey man, I have a publishing company in Nashville. You should go out there and and talk with my partner and consider writing songs and uh i'm like and write songs for what and uh he said for for other artists and for yourself maybe you get a you know i mean we have ends in country music and i was like i don't even i don't know that i like i don't listen to country music i don't know if that would work um but i i went out there and then um i ended up signing a, a really small publishing deal and working for two or three years and when that was, was that 2004 to yeah. seven or so um what did you do for the next you know i mean they say it takes 10 years to make an overnight success yeah and it seems like that's not too far off 
as far as like the trajectory of things that went on for you. And, you know, it seems like really I see like Kip Moore in yeah. 2015 is really, you know. Yeah, that's when it started. Right. Um, well, I left Nashville. I went to Nashville with uh, with on that publishing deal. But it, there really wasn't an infrastructure for me. The publishing company fell apart like the day after I moved there. Sure, I still it still had the the funding guy. I sort of chose sides and chose the fu- the guy with, with who could pay me a check um, for my advance. Yeah, but I didn't have any infrastructure, so nobody was handling handling me in terms of helping me develop and. Um, helping me develop with other artists or, or other writers or whatever if I was going to be an artist. And and then, you know, I ended up getting a divorce. And so I, and I was taking care of my daughter a lot. And then... And then Were they both in Nashville, Nashville. with you? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And then, and, then I, and then her mom moved away. And so it was me and the kid, me, me and my daughter. And I was thinking, I can't... T- how am I going to... If I get a record deal, how am I going to tour... Am I going to take her on the road with me? You know, and and so I just thought that nobody gives a shit about these songs. And we I went and got laughed out of out of Capitol Records with with the I made I ended up meeting a great producer and, a, and who became a great friend. All the musicians loved me. They loved playing with me. The top tier musicians loved me. But I still, it was like it was like pulling teeth to get people to care and to get a deal or whatever. And I'm just like, this ain't working, man. And I may as well go get a PhD and and teach because it's not working. And and by then I had a master's, so I was teaching a little bit. I was driving forklift, trying to play a little music, raising a kid, and masters in philosophy. I got had the got had gotten the masters by then, and so then I, I moved to New York and said, "That's it. Um, I'm done. I'm going to go to Fordham or the New School or whoever let me or will let me in to get a PhD." and try and do it that way um and that was like the end of of that dream for a second um but i wasn't out very long why um who pulls you back in if you leave to go it's it's hard enough to get people interested when you're non-stop in it yeah two people pull me back in um one person is busby um i've i flew out here because of i had a friend who uh, I had a friend who worked in commercials, and he's like, just come stay with me. You're really talented. He had directed a, an EPK for me, and he's like, I, I love you, dude. Come hang with I got enough room for you out in Altadena. He had this great spot out there. He's like, hang with me. I got some friends who work at music houses. Go talk to them. You know, do this, do that. And um, then I was recently married. My father-in-law had taken an interest in my career, and he said... Hey, you know, I like to help people. Here's if you need anything from me in terms of, um, you know, not money, but in terms of you need gear, you need something to help you. Let me know. And I said, I need a couple plane tickets. I want to go fly to L.A. and see what happens, and a in a rental car. I'll fi- I'll scrounge for food or a place to stay or whatever. And so flew out here and through this random connection in Tulsa, he's like, you should meet my friend Busby and. Um, and while we went, I don't know how they knew each other, but he, I was like, okay, you know, he's a big songwriter or something or, 
and he was living in Glendale at the time. And so I went and had, he made me breakfast and we just talked and he's like, I love all this stuff. I think you're great. You know, I'm thinking I might have a publishing deal, a publishing company soon. If you're interested in writing some country music, you should, we should do some work together. It's crazy. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This week's episode is sponsored by BMI. Full disclosure, Joe and I are both BMI songwriters. So we didn't write this, but we believe it. BMI, we celebrate your talent, value your music, and champion your rights. To all our songwriters and composers, your passion is ours. BMI, music moves our world. What is it about musicians that that don't let musicians quit? I feel like there's something where musicians all know the struggle and every time a musician wants to get out, some other musician is like, nah. You, know, you almost congratulate people when they get out of the industry. Yeah. On the industry side, you're always say, congrats, you got out. Yeah. You won. You're the one who got out. But when it's a musician, I feel like almost slighted when I find out a songwriter just quit. And then on the other hand, it's like if you know of a songwriter that's struggling, you almost want to pull them in to keep yeah. them in. I think, you know, if I loved somebody's work enough, um, and with Busby was being a friend, you know, or he he wasn't, we weren't friends yet. He wasn't being a friend. He was being a human is yeah. a better way to put it. He was being a human and saying, this stuff is really good. I would be willing to take a, a risk on this, you know, through my JV. I believe in it. I believe in you, you know, and and so he's, it's twofold, you know, he's believing in a person, but he's also believing in the talents and also believing that the talents might work. It could, might work, you know. Yeah. And so we... Definitely met a good one. Yeah, sure. yeah, he was really good. And um, we rode a few times at his place in Glendale and I would come out here and he was really encouraging when I started making the film. He's like, this stuff is really great, you know. Um, we never, he and I as business partners never quite found a way to make it work then. Um, and it was just, I was really in incubation phase right then. Um, did so, you know that then? I, feel I like didn't know, I yeah. didn't know that. I thought that I was ready. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't ready. And, and, um, I don't think Busby knew either, you know, no, no it's, nobody knows anything in the music business. Everybody has these hunches and sometimes the hunches work out. Right. Um, but also, Busby's a writer, you know, and and so he's on his grind, and 
I'm worrying about myself and I don't have really any relationships and yeah. trying to figure it out. Um, and so I moved back to Nashville um, to try to get in, involved in, in the community a little bit more. And, uh, and this, at this time you're a doctor, did you finish your PhD? I didn't do yeah. because I started making money with music when Busby, when I found, when Busby and I started working together, I had also started working into the spec world of advertising and actually honing my chops and doing really well. I started like right after he and I met is a different side of the business, but I'd started doing really well and went in a lot of ads and my stuff was on international commercials Any and stuff commercials like this. commercials that we know of? I mean, I don't know. Uh, you know, a <laughs> Hilton International yeah, Honors, right. whatever. Yeah, sure. Uh, and then there was a, I think I did one of you guys' uh, lottery things out here. Perfect. Yeah, I don't know. BevMo. I don't know, man. Just all kinds of stuff. Yeah. But it was like they were big checks, you know. Was your your new wife at that point? She's uh, she's, she's traveling with you to these places. No, no, no. She she was finishing her residency in New York in, at NYU, oh. and so I was trying to get my shit together so I could keep up, you right. know. And, and that's why I was like, I'll get a PhD, you know. I mean, it's yeah. like you feel you don't want to feel like a loser, you know. Right. Um, excuse me, but we. Um, End up moving to Nashville, and none of the stuff I'm doing right then works as a songwriter. Um, because to me, because I'm not in the right rooms, I'm I'm thinking about songs wrong. Um, and my current publisher, he met me for breakfast, and he said he had called me. My current publisher had called me when I was in New York. He said, "I saw you. I met you." You don't remember me. I was an A&R at Capitol Records when you played your music, and I loved it. Nobody else loved it, but I thought I really saw something. And um, he goes, I'm in the publishing business now. I'm looking for songs for Dirk Bentley. And I, and I said, that's flattering, dude, but the stuff I'm writing, it's like all in falsetto and, you know, about like weird versions of the afterlife. I don't think that that's going to really play to the audience, you know. I mean, I'm no I'm no company man, you know, when it comes to figuring out what a demographic wants, but I'm just guessing here that yeah. it's not going to work. He's like, "All right, dude, call me if you're in town." Get back in town, call him. He's like, "I love this record. I the la the last record that I did which w was this sort of eclectic eccentric indie folk thing that had really been born out of my production shops working on commercials and stuff like that, getting fast, learning about programming, learning about different noises, learning about sense, like just a, a, not a band mentality of let's go all into the studio and get the drums right and do this and do that. It's just like boom, 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 be creative, be creative, make, make music, make music. And... He goes, I love this stuff. I think that these two songs, Eric loves the songs. He was working with Eric Church. He was he he signed Eric to his first publishing deal, signed Dirks to his first publishing deal, signed Miranda, signed Taylor Swift to their first. So he's like a procurer of of talent before people, other people find it. And I felt like if he believes in me, man, you know, and it's like Busby believes in me, you know, it's like you got all these little stepping stones along the way of people just keeping you hopeful you know and so then he believed in me and it wasn't a year or two after that i started getting cuts and then here came radio singles and what's the first radio single 
kill a word. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I mean, yeah. Eric Church, and it's sort of like the, that sort of is, I don't know if you'd say coming out party, but I, I feel like that album sort of the, the if you don't know who Eric Church is now. Yeah. You know. You know he was, a, that was his headlining festivals kind of it album. It was, a, so. yeah, for sure. Um, it's always sort of a phenomena, a shocking phenomena to me to see the numbers on how many tickets that country artists sell yet they're not in culture at large. You know what I mean? It doesn't make Why it... Why is that? I think that the other kinds of music get placed in culture at large and so that country is left to, left to only get find its way to the people through country radio or or through other country artists or through other country culture so it still feels subcultural when it's on this mega culture level yeah in terms of record sales and and they're performing in stadiums Stadium. not even necessarily arenas and yet the the pop artists are playing three nights in an arena and the country artists are playing at anaheim stadium instead of dodger stadium so you notice but you know if you're in la you're noticing dodger stadium not exactly as i saw eric at, at angel stadium and it was like it was just massively packed, and it's when the Casey was the opening opening act. Casey Musgraves yeah. open for Eric. Yeah, I mean, it might have been a festival. How? Uh, uh, I was like, I wonder how that. I wonder how his fans responded. That would be curious. I mean, it's so early on. Yeah. Um, but but I, that was. I mean, yeah. that was probably the luckiest day of my life. I, I, I've said that before. Uh, when you first heard the song on the radio, or when Eric cut the song? When Eric cut the, the song, song, you know, I, I had the idea and I sent it to Arturo, and he's like, "I love this. I want to send the idea to Eric." It was just a little scrapped out version. Eric came over. My buddy Jeff Hyde was there, um, who 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 plays in Eric's band. We wrote that song, then we wrote "Round Here Buzz." So you got two hits in one day, and all of a sudden, I mean, it's like then you you know, it's like now you have to keep the bars up. You know, you want to keep making you. It's like oh, I wasn't even really kill a word think i wasn't even really saying man i'm gonna write a country song today i'm like i want to write a good song today i have this idea i don't know how to do it i'm gonna try to do it and you write an idea and then somebody likes it and then and he and there are, he's a little more on the rock side of things he's a little closer to pearl jam and neil young than it, than you know he would be to you know conway twitty yeah yes it's not really it's like the word country has evolved a lot you know it so, has in so. the song and that was i remember being in new york and a writer the only it was the first big writer that would write with me who had hits. His name's Steve McEwen. You know yeah. This guy? Steve McEwen. Um, he uh, showed me it was Smoke a Little Smoke. I'd not listened to country in, since I left Nashville. And, you know, this is three years, four years had gone by. And he played me Smoke a Little Smoke. And Jay Joyce had produced it. And it was so far out. And I'm like, this is what they're doing in Nashville now? I mean, it was yeah. like big and rich, this bombastic, weird, like, like just, like, crazy meat potato stuff, you know? And this was like sonically to me here, and it was sonically interesting, quirky. I didn't know how, like, I love listening to something saying, I don't know how they did that. I have no clue. I could not, re I could not recreate that um, in the slightest. And, 
the answer was no that's not what nashville was doing that's what they were doing and it happened to work you know and then jay joyce went on to become a huge producer yeah of course i i think a lot of people who are in los angeles and new york don't understand that how big country music is not just in in the live performances but radio wise you know and a number one country song gets two and a half times the amount of spins that a number one alternative record yeah. gets. I mean, it's not even in the same ballpark. You know, it, pop music aside, country's as big as Hot AC. It's as big. It's you know bigger than it, you know many urban types of urban kind of stations and any kind of rock station. Mm-hmm. So it really is where a lot of rock and roll has kind of yeah it's evolved consumed, into. it cons- cons- consumed the rock genre in a, in a way um you you know you end up with you have that year with kip moore one of our friends friend of the podcast kip moore who's kip done come this. do one of these yeah okay cool yeah you can say hi um you know but you have kip and you have eric church and then and dirks bentley all that are you know really significant artists you know they're all different i would say even like you know the dirks bentley album that was that was pretty big for you you know to be a part of at that time um but those first few years of cuts are so male centric for you um is it because there were so many male artists in country music during those years or do you think you were being pigeonholed as to you should be writing for male artists um I don't I don't look at any of my career at least from my perspective as calculated at all as just kind of opportunistic. Yeah. Those are the opportunities that were right in front of me. If it would have been Miranda Lambert in front of me then, I would have been happy to go totally. down to, to go to go down that road. However, I guess it was a little bit easier a bridge between what I knew and and I kind of look at writing with other people and other artists and other writers is kind of this special situation of a Venn diagram hmm. where you're trying to find something that both you and they like and believe in at the same time. And so you're finding, trying to find something creatively that, that this overlap. And, and it's also okay to me when a lyric gets off and is somebody else's and not yours in term, even from, from an, from an idea perspective, like I wouldn't, I don't believe that, but I believe that you believe it and I'm happy to go down and follow your muse. Um, it's to me, and I will help it in the ways that, and love it in the ways that I can love it, where that it becomes character writing. You know, do you think that Vonnegut was every character in his book? No, he wasn't, you know? And so you use your, your skills and your craft to do some things and then you use your heart and your soul to do other things and and your craft to do other things and so i really i mean i enjoy it as a as an as a practice i mean you're obviously pretty good at it because it seems like a lot of the songs are autobiographical in a way i'm sure that they are for the artist too but you know living in a small town in oklahoma and talking about what it's like to live kind of um euphemistically a uh redneck life yeah yeah you know sure, it sure. seems really genuinely right um, uh, you know there, there's there's some truth to a lot of what you talk about i feel also 
I mean, not everybody in Cogar, Oklahoma decides to go get a philosophy degree. Um, in fact, I think I may be, we'd well, have to consult the records, but I may be the only one. Sure. Um, so there's some part of you that doesn't fit, feels like you, do, you don't fit in some way too. But I also feel like everybody in the world feels like they don't fit in some way. So that it, when you get to an artist who, every artist is kind of eccentric in their own regard. So eccentricity is okay, even though I may be a little weirder or whatever than somebody else. Um, there's still this idea of just trying to find our fit, you know, in the world creatively or personally or whatever. And that's kind of an, I wouldn't know if it's a theme in the music, but there's an undertone of that and when I'm making songs yeah. and stuff. Yeah. I mean, after, you know, Kip Moore, Eric Church, Dirks Bentley, and Jared Neiman, and Charlie Warsham and stuff, are you starting to feel like, these are, they're all really big names, are you starting to feel confident that you're not going to have to get another job at this point? Yeah, man. Or, or I mean, you? you you know how it works. I mean, you know, it's like the. I don't imagine that people are gonna care about me for longer than five to ten years. As a writer, it's just even if I have a heyday and have a writer of the year year, that's okay to me, so long as you're paying attention, you know, to how it is you're making a living, and then okay, you do a catalog sale or whatever and you save and you buy your house and you be happy with the fact that you got to write songs for a living. Yeah. I don't ever imagine myself um, being tech rich, you know. Right. Um, but I want to be able to be, I want to be able to remain creatively active. Um, I would love it if people kept liking my songs and I kept adding something to the genre in some way and or any genre in some way that that people enjoyed um is but, it is it hard to have a um you know we were just talking you know, you're here you were in new york you're going somewhere after this yeah. um besides home um is it is it hard to live this life and you're married yeah with a bunch of kids uh-huh to a, a doctor that's right who must also have a very extensive schedule or you know complicated schedule yeah yeah we're, is it we're, is it difficult or is it something that you guys inspire each other to oh you know we we consult therapists about these types of things and keeping <laughs> the schedule straight yeah know? sure it, it's how many kids do you have when you see four yeah wow it's tricky um i mean you're seeing me in california and most of the time i'm at home um, yeah. I probably will play 20 to 40, 20, 20 to 40 dates a year. And then I try to, uh, and, I, and then I make a couple of trips. If I'm in New York, I can see a kid, you know, I, my oldest kid is there going to school so I can do a little business. Maybe I do a little pl play. Um, my kid ran merch for me as <laughs> we, as we did an nice. East coast tour through all of the college supplies in the back of the sprinter. And that's that band that you were on. That's Steve. That's Steve. Uh-huh. That's Steve. So is the goal for your artist project to be as successful as these projects you write for, or is it totally irrelevant to the success of it and it's only about putting out music you Su like? Success is not irrelevant to me when it comes to Steve. I want to... I. 
like in Nashville, it's 700 or so people, whatever. I would love to have 1,000 to 2,000 seat rooms and have a few markets that way to where when I do, do put, when you're ready to put out music, that you have your people who are ready for it. And then it, it validates the project in some way, not only to yourself as you're writing because yeah. there's a certain validation that comes with just writing the music, but to, great, everybody's excited. The shows are, 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 um, are wild and also communal and people show up and they're dressed up and they're ready to, they're ready to go for it and lose it. And so I want that, um, as long as I can, as long as I can muster it in myself, I want to make that experience with me and with other people. So that's my, really my goal is to make that experience with me and other people. And also to be able to justify it when you have kids at the house too. It's like, cool. All right. You know, made a little money, had some great times, you know, put our, put your little mark on the world and had some relate and, and had some experiences with other human beings, you know, yeah. that's, um, that's the goal with that. Um, do I, do I want to go on tour? Uh, do I want to do a Coliseum tour? Yeah. Yes, I want to do a Coliseum tour. So if there are any acts out there hmm. looking for a great new wave alt rock band to open for you. Um, well, call, I mean, and me a song, songwriter, the fact that you can go on tour and you can write with the the bands that you now we're talking. Tour with. Yeah. Now we're talking. You wouldn't be the first. I mean, that, that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. You know. Can I use your bus, too? Yeah, sure. Uh-huh. Why not? And uh, free gas and everything. Yep. Um, Velvet, Elvis, Velvet Elvis is the only album track that... I think is worthy of noting right now because of how significant that Casey Musgraves album was that year. You could even say is because I kind of feel like albums we shouldn't say was like they yeah. don't exist. You can listen to it now. It is. Significant. Get it. Um, that's sort of the, like I was saying, I feel like her, uh, the way she has, stepped up saying really highlighting how country radio is primarily male you know she's one of the artists her and miranda both of you have of you know a lot of success with have really um highlighted magnified the how in a way, sexist country radio is. And, you know, there's a thought process in the pop world that's interesting, which is that what I think, you know, ideally it's 50-50 male-female or uh, whatever the spectrum is, but an equal opportunity for all people. Um, But to... A lot of times there are, you know, there are a lot of camps that are built around all female writers or it's all, um, or it's all male writers or it's, you know, we'll sprinkle in a few here or there. Right. It's just an interesting era, I think, for country because you're seeing the change with now Marin speaking of Busby and... You know, there's a, a list of, of women that are starting to show up on country radio. But he, someone like Casey was really one of the loudest voices. And to get to work with her during this is, is an interesting time. 
and you know that. I, I think the world of Casey, um, and I'm I'm trying to, um, I get try to be thoughtful about this answer because um, I just remember um, writing, and you know not knowing what was going to happen. When I wrote with her, number one, having a great time and also like recognizing her unique creativity. She was doodling the whole time on an hmm. iPad with this little app and making this sort of beautiful little tapestry thing as we were writing. And I was like, oh, it's just in there. You know what I mean? It's just that, 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 um, that weird unique hippie color um but country you know it's all right there um a little bit punk you know it's it's all happening and just living and breathing and uh then writing the song thinking that's great um you, you as a songwriter you don't know what's going to happen right you write the song and then you and then you bounce and you know do a, do a demo of it and really dig the demo and everybody really digs the demo and then she brought on Ian and Daniel to produce who I know from town who are weird dudes right and they don't they don't have they at the time they didn't have any country cred in terms of they made hits or you know they this record did this or this record did that and I'm like, wow, what's going to happen? Is it going to be a flop? Is it going to be great? Is it going to be, uh, I know it's going to be cool. I like those guys a lot. Will it compete in the radio world? Really, that was the question. And at the end of the day, I want artists to be artists and enjoy their lives, right? And to, and to try to be expressive. That's what I want for them. But then there's the other part of me that's a writer who thinks, Gosh, I have to have a single, or or I don't eat. You know, I ha there has to be a song that I could get on the radio, and and it was like I don't know if they're gunning for radio or not. And you don't want to. I mean, it's none of your business. You know, after you, you you my business is to serve the room for the day, and I felt like I'd done that. But then after it was all said and done, I was like, I don't know if they want to be on the radio. I don't know. Do they want to be on the radio? I don't know. Then I was like, oh, we'll see. But then to see her explode. After that, you know, this was a big thing. The record was great. The record, I wanted to listen to it from cover to cover, you know, and it was expressive. And um, it was it, it was expressive without being pretentious. She wasn't trying to get on a soapbox or anything in the record. It, the music just spoke for itself. And then to watch that thing turn into this cultural um, phenomena. So, you know, here we're talking about how country doesn't influence the rest of culture, and then you have the album of the year. The album of the year, Grammy, like the not overall, the country record. Right. This is the album of yeah. the year. And uh, and here's a little side note. Just uh, I thought I'd won a Grammy when she won the Grammy because they said I heard somebody just flippantly said, "You you know, the writers get a Grammy." That's not true. Um, Can I get on my soapbox for one second yes. about it? Okay, so this is the first thing I ever did for the legislation stuff was uh -huh. to fight to get writers added to album of the year. Uh -huh. And they did that. But when they did that, they asked to change all of the um, producer, engineer, anybody has to be a part of at least 33% of the 33 album. 33% of the which album. Which then took people like Shane McNally off, uh -huh. took you off. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, you won a Grammy. Yeah. And the argument against it are a lot of people who talk about 
the importance of maintaining the quality as custodians of the Grammy Award. Those people just quantified the award and shame on those people who are part of the uh, awards and nomination committee who do (laughs) not see that what you're doing is cutting out all of the people who are part of an album. And a lot of that deals with uh, a a history of albums that are maybe not particularly white and not particularly made by one producer and one artist. And there are a lot of issues with why why people fight against if you have 5% of one song, should you get a Grammy? The answer is yes. And the answer is yes because if you write 5% of one song and it's played in a TV show that wins show of the year for the Emmys, you win an Emmy. So for you to not do it for the album of the year because you are worried that somebody is somehow negotiating their way onto an album for some other nefarious purpose, shame on the people who do not see that you are quantifying the Grammy Awards. Yeah, listen to this, man. I want to send me my hardware, people. For real, you earned a Grammy, and songwriters have, you know, we have. There's one songwriter who won a Grammy. Um, I believe it was, I guess, the year before you guys with um, James Fauntleroy. Maybe it was the year after. Whenever Br- uh, Bruno Mars won, was that? Oh the, yeah, was that, no, last that, year? that was the year before, I think. Yeah, you know, that's the first time a songwriter won um, a Grammy just for being a songwriter in sixty years. Yeah, uh, that's it, that's it's crazy. That's, yeah. There's no songwriter of the year. There's no, the, you know, there's only. It's it's a lot of work. I mean, and, yeah. and it's it's our passion, but it's also it's not easy to come up with great stuff. Yeah, and and who's to say that the person who does the lighting shouldn't win? You know, shouldn't get acknowledgement. It's for, part. Of, it's a, it takes know, a village. It takes a village. It, it takes a village, a, and you you should you sh- whatever. Okay, I'm sorry. I didn't mean this is your interview, and I just. Objected. <laughs> All right, so uh, I guess so let me let me finish just yeah. that thought that that to see. Casey explode out of that situation um, where she didn't exactly know what would happen and I feel like it just took a lot of courage to just um, follow her own artistic and aesthetic intuitions and not give a shit about radio and and then and and expect it to work you know I don't she of course did have a, a hit to get her started a couple of hits to get her started but to to say I'm still going to do it and I don't care if they won't play it. Um, that took a lot of guts to do it that way, and then to go on and become what she has become over the past year to two years is. Um, I just hats off, hats off to yeah. that, uh, and an advocate, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I saw this legend, and, and here's something I don't know, and I I really don't want to pigeonhole myself, but um, I've been listening to the Dolly podcast. Have you heard that? Jad Abumad, oh, yeah, yeah, Radio yeah, Lab from Radio Lab. It's so yeah. so good. Um, I'm three or four episodes in, and uh, About Dolly yeah, Parton for those who Dolly don't Parton. Remember. If yes, anybody, yeah, it, the, the, not the Dalai Lama, um, <laughs> right. the Dolly Parton, which um, has a philosopher. Uh, it yeah, could, be. could be. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so Dolly. So Dolly. They were so so the argument, and I don't I don't know about all the arguments when it comes to, uh, well well. If they played more females, would they listen to the would they listen to the females? But the but the argument that you that I hear often is, well, the the fans want to hear male. It's the primarily a female demographic. They want to hear more 
males than females. I'm not, this is not Luke standing up for one side or another, but that's the thing. That's the, the undertone that keeps, that, that keeps occurring to me. And it's a, it's not just one person saying something. This is a multitude of people who are making decisions here. Um, but it, what I found interesting about this Dolly, um, uh, the Dolly podcast, podcast yeah. was that 20, 30 years ago, that's what they were saying too. Yeah. yeah. So you do what you want with that. I think it does deserve some... It deser- I mean, you could argue the same thing for pop music too, that as the Clive says, as long as there are teenage girls, there will be boy bands. Yes. And it's the same argument, but you know, then you see the success of... You know, Fifth Harmony, and then all the people who are succeeding out of that, and you see. The I don't think that's enough data. I don't think that's a really a data-driven reason. Enough right. of a data-driven reason not to be self-reflective about the issue being brought forth. Plus, it might be our responsibility to help move the conversation along, and and to if if women aren't getting played on radio because the audience isn't familiar with women performers and maybe it's our job to feed, you know, women artists to those listeners so they can hear how diverse and how good these women are. And you have, you know, not to keep going, but you have Miranda Lambert that you worked on so much on this last album. Yeah. And of course, our favorite, you know, Grammy nominees, the <laughs> high women. Yeah, the high women. You know, you have you have women right now that that have earned and deserved the respect that you know people like Casey really kind of help. I you know, uh, show it, the, you know I started writing with way. women after I wrote with with um, Natalie Hemby, and it was it wasn't because I didn't want to write. It wasn't. It was just your schedule fills up, and it's mostly dudes. There's mostly dudes in the genre, so dudes start showing up. But then Nat and I um, started writing, and, and we just had this instant connection. She had made this film about her grandfather. I was working on the Red Dog. I'd also made this short film about this woman and her grandfather. There were and, and we were we were geeking out on our influences and we wrote the the first song we ever wrote was Howie Vagabonds, which is ended up on Miranda's last record. Um it was just an instant creative connection. And um she really became a mouthpiece for me in Nashville and sort of yelled my name out um and raised her hand for me. And I got a lot more female rights after that, after she and I started working together. And I love writing with females, um, especially in country, because I think the perspective, um, I don't know. Um, This is just me postulating here, of course, but it's like, I feel like there's there's a lot more subject matter that females want to cover in country versus males there's a there's it feels like there's a a little bit of a um j- j- the notion of uh the notion of being a dude is, is like we have to sing this is tough stuff this is that you know there's very little sensitive there's not too much sensitivity yeah, there's machismo and you are yeah yeah and it's like, like i get i get that too it's yeah. not like i don't identify with that but there's also it's like the the uh, I don't know that it's um 
I, I would say like one thing I like about Sam Hunt, for instance, is that there's this that breakup in a small town to me was interesting to me because I remember it made me feel like um, I remember this girl. I dated this older girl when I was in in. I was in ninth grade and she was in eleventh grade, and she'd come get me in her Pontiac Grand Am, and uh, and she had the upper hand the whole time, right? And to feel powerless around, you know, somebody, and and in his song he says, you know, your your car is leaving those same marks in somebody else's yard because in country you just kind of pull up in the drive and you park there, you know, and. And I was like, wow, that's, to me, that's such a poignant image to me. And for him to say that, it's like it's, he's given the power o- away. It's like I'm powerless, you know? And I feel like that's a unique perspective in country music to give that power away, to show the vulnerability and stuff like that. And it doesn't always happen uh, from the dude's perspective in country for whatever reason. I don't, this is not a, definitely not a call out or anything. It's just, this is what's, this is what's being, uh, this is the perspectives that are focused. Um, whereas with females, there's a lot of different ground you that gets exciting to me to cover, you know. And it's and it's vulnerable and it's tough and it's um, um, and it's lighthearted and it's heavy-hearted. You know, I mean, I feel like there's a there's a it's a quite a spectrum that gets covered. Um, yeah, in this. In this next segment called What Would Natalie Hemby Ask Luke Dick? <laughs> Natalie asks, how many times Luke Dick thinks he peed in his backyard? <laughs> Did she really ask that? Yeah. I mean, oh my God. Can, would I have let's do some math. Let's do some math. <laughs> so I, I keep telling myself one more hit and I'll put a bathroom in the studio. <laughs> The ladies, of course, can go inside the house, but the, but dudes just go out back, and it's um, say I say I do it four times a day. Um, let's do the math here: four times a day um, times that many work days a year, sure. fifty-two weeks times five, so ten, uh, two hundred and fifty, two hundred fifty days a year times four zero zero. So, eight, 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 a thousand times a year times I've had that okay. studio for four, so Jesus. four thousand times, four thousand times, four thousand times. Okay, I'll, um, I'll send that to her. Okay, that was something she was wondering about. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, shout out to, to Natalie, not only for, um, you know, I don't think. Until high, the high women, if you were not a country writer or you're not in Nashville, you haven't had the opportunity to listen to how good her voice is. That is incredible. Like her voice is great. She's a great writer, but she's a great singer. Uh, she, we, we have, we get cuts, but sometimes it's hard because she slays oh, on man, a demo, so and it's like, "Yo, better bring your A game." Yeah. Natalie's saying the demo, um, so live up to that. Good luck. We do a show once a year, she and I, of our like our best songs. It's, we call it Dick Hemby. Yeah, and uh, we just played one like last week. It was on fire. It was so much fun. Yeah, I I would uh, like to go to that. Um, so. Uh, our last segment is going to be, I'm going to list five things, you know, and you're just going to tell me what comes okay. off the top of your head. Okay. okay? Uh, Arturo, your A&R. 
No, just tell me what one of the things that comes off your the top of your head. Okay, um, Arturo, my publisher. Okay, um, five for five. That's five for five. Your publisher. Publisher. Arturo, number one. Okay, what what comes to my mind when yeah. you say Arturo? Uh. Um, surly, mercurial, um, uh. heartful, song loving, people loving. Cool. Kip Moore. Mm, biceps, <laughs> Grav- gravel, um, uh, let's see, Heartland. Um, I got two more for him, right? Uh, wow, narrator, um, and good God. That's good enough. Okay. We'll go good God. Dirks Bentley. You can just give one thing. You don't have to do all it's not like a, it's a, yeah, it's Am just, I taking too long? Is that what's no, happening? No, just, you can take you can give five things. I, I there aren't really any rules. I'm okay, just saying okay. don't stress too much. Are, are these long answers? It's what answers? however answer however you Dirks, want to answer it. Um uh, nicest guy you'll ever meet. Oh wow. Truly nice. Uh-huh. He wants to help you. He wants to get up uh-huh. and tra- hey, this I think this seat's a little more comfortable. You know, you should take the seat. Yeah, huh. that's yeah. cool. Yeah. Um. Let's do Eric Church. Eric Church, uh, frenetic, uh, constantly, c- perpetually in motion in his head about what he wants to do next, creatively, or or theatrically, I guess. Um. And and and. Perpetually curious. Um, we got to do Natalie. Natalie. Oh, wow. Um, consummate Brentwood mom punk. <laughs> On that note, we, you know, do Miranda too, just to give her, give her a shout out. Oh, wow. Miranda. Um, I think she's one of, if not the most authentic artists in Nashville um, really digging in herself her it's not just a song it's she's trying to dig it out of her she's trying to work it out she's working herself that's what I mean this authenticity yeah. of of having to do it's a self-expression to her self-expression I know this is over five but also yeah. your mom I mean she's really the, oh. if the subject of the documentary is not really you and your child it's not me it's my mom I'm yeah. the I'm sort of the narrator sort yeah. of tie, the rug tying the room together kind of thing yeah. and my mom is uh, relentless um, so extremely charismatic and so unabashedly loving in regards to human beings and human interaction nobody better at human human interaction and loving people than my mom yeah well thank you for doing this yeah thank you you know we have a lot of people who have um taken i guess what you would think is the cliche of the usual path yeah you know and and my assumption is that the usual path is fast it's young and it's you know you Move to Nashville, you move to uh, LA, you move to New York, and you just sort of somehow succeed. And that there's this 
even though there's no real map to it, the assumption is that, you know, somebody moves to these towns, they get in the rooms, and then they they make it. They write hit songs, or they were born hit writers. Yeah. But that they weren't people who really had to, you know, as you're describing Miranda, it's similar to, you know, really has to dig deep and become this writer. You went through all, you you tried everything you could to not be a writer. <laughs> yeah. You know? You um, tried everything you could, and and... You know, if it's, I don't know if I believe in this or not, but if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And, yeah. you know, you you really didn't have a choice and you had to be a writer. And, I, you know, I'm still I wondering if I'm story. a writer. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Totally. Uh, I'm glad I, I'm glad I, I'm on, on many days, I'm glad I am. Yeah. I'm ecstatic, actually. Yeah. It's a, a great deal of joy and, I haven't. It hasn't been a straight path, and it's still not a straight path to me. Um, yeah. I have to practice every day. I mean, in my head, mentally, get into a practice of what it is. Am I gonna? What am, what am I supposed to be doing? What is life about? What? Yeah. What? What? Why are we writing these words? Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's tricky. Well, shout out to Busby, our friend. Shout that, out to Busby. You know, he's. We talked a little bit after that, and. Uh, he, I'm glad he's the one who brought you back into this thing. He was one of the first people I ever wrote with. That was one of the things that I talked about as his, on his, you know, for his eulogy and whatnot. You know, it's um, uh, some people just sort of open doors for other people, and he was somebody who opened doors for a lot of people. He was. He's so, a part part of my constellation for yeah, sure. Absolutely. So, uh, shout out to him. Thank you for doing this. And uh, there you go. There you go. Thank you, Ross. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And The Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.